and invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We just finished 40 weeks working through the letter to the Hebrews. Now we are preparing for probably about 40 years to work through the book of Acts. Not really. But this morning we will hear God's word from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon him once again in prayer. Almighty Father, we do thank you that you continue to speak to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, me standing here and speaking will accomplish nothing. So we do ask that your spirit would move among and within us, that we might hear your word and believe the truth of the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Well, the Bible provides you with four accounts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these accounts gives you a selective history of Jesus' earthly ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. Luke also includes his ascension. We call these books the four Gospels, but that title might be confusing to some. Does that mean the gospel of Jesus is contained, confined within those four books? What about all the Old Testament books that come before, all of the New Testament books that come after? Does this mean Jesus leaves the story when he leaves earth, that he has stopped acting in the world, that his ministry is over? Those are important questions, and Luke, in particular, answers them for us. Because Luke, who wrote both the Gospel of Luke and this book of Acts, clearly believed there's one Gospel story. There is one story of God's plan for the world and work in the world. Luke doesn't believe he's writing a brand new story from what you find in the Old Testament. But he is continuing to record biblical redemptive history as it unfolded in his day. 
So his gospel of Jesus Christ is not a new story. It's just a new beginning in the one story. Luke also believed that the gospel didn't end when Jesus ascended to heaven, that Jesus' ministry was then over. Christ's ascension was not his final act, nor was it the final chapter in the gospel. No, the Christian story is continuing. Jesus is still acting. We see this in the introductory verses to this book of Acts. We see that Acts is the story of Christ continued, and that this story is historical, it is reasonable, and it is personal. That's what I'm going to try to show you this morning. So first, the Christian story is historical. Luke begins in the first book, O Theophilus. And of course, this makes you wonder, what was the first book? Well, Luke is referring to his gospel account. For if you turn to the opening of that gospel, which was universally understood in the early church to be written by Luke, you'll notice that that was also addressed to a man who Luke refers to there as the most excellent Theophilus. And when you read the opening of Luke and the opening of Acts side by side, you clearly see these were written by the same person to the same recipient with the same purpose. The author is Luke. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul will be a significant character throughout Acts. In Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul identifies Luke as one of his fellow workers. When Paul is imprisoned for the last time in Rome, soon before he dies, he writes to Timothy and he says, Luke alone is with me. Paul also identifies Luke in Colossians as the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. He was most likely a Gentile. If you read his Greek, he was clearly well-educated, possibly of a higher social and financial status, but one who eventually converted to Christianity and became a regular companion of Paul throughout Paul's missionary journeys. This explains the many we passages that you find in the book of Acts. Luke was there for a lot of what he writes. The recipient is a man named Theophilus. We don't know anything about him other than his name and that he appears to be at least a relatively recent convert. His name means loved by God. As I said in Luke's gospel account, Theophilus is given the, the honorific most excellent, which is also given to Roman officials like Felix and Festus later in Acts. So 
Many speculate Theophilus was a Roman official, or at the very least, someone again of a higher social status. The purpose of both Luke and Acts is clearly stated in the opening of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Luke was clearly a Presbyterian. He wanted to do everything decently in good order. So he writes an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now listen again to the opening of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So in these first three verses, Luke is summarizing his entire gospel account, which means everything that he is writing now in Acts is still in his mind and orderly account of what Theophilus and other Christians have been taught. The first book was about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so for Luke, the end of that first book was not the end of the story. It's continuing. So think of Luke and Acts like the Lord of the Rings trilogy or, or uh, any other of your favorite book series. It's one story with multiple volumes. This is why when, when people sometimes ask me, oh, what are some of your favorite books? I list The Lord of the Rings as one book. I'm, I'm not cheating. It's one story that just written in three parts. None of them can stand alone. You can't just read The Return of the King by itself. It doesn't make any sense without The Fellowship or The Two Towers. Neither can you just read one of the first two stop and say, ah, yes, I, I read the story. They depend upon one another. Each volume is a continuation of the one story. That is how Luke Acts functions. It's just one story divided into two parts. And just as it is whenever a a new book in a series or the, the next season in one of your favorite TV shows comes, you, you often need a, a quick recap of what happened in the previous book or the previous season because it may have been a little bit of time since you read it or, or saw it. And that's what Luke is providing in these opening verses of Acts. 
So Luke is still providing an orderly account of the Christian story that Theophilus and others have been taught. And he's doing this so that Christians can be convinced that what they've heard is true. He wants Theophilus and all Christians to be confident that Jesus really is God's Savior for the world. He wants them to see that everything that has happened in history, including the history of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is God's plan and purpose. He wants them to understand that Christians really are God's people. But you see that for Luke, this confidence, this certainty is rooted in history. Luke is taking up the mantle of a historian. If you read other historical accounts around this time in the ancient world, they follow the, the same process that Luke does. They depend on eyewitness accounts, on oral tradition, even though many think Luke writes a lot of fake stuff. They, he he sounds like a reliable historian, and we accept all of the other ancient historians. The Christian story, therefore, is, is not presented to you as a myth or a fable. It's not presented to you as a moral code. Sometimes people think Christianity, oh, it's, it's a moral teaching, and people just attach some events to give context to that teaching. And the New Testament writers are the exa exact opposite. They say, no, events happened, and that determines the teaching. The Christian story is not a fable. It's not a moral code. It's not a, psych a psychology to help you deal with the hard things in life. It is not a subjective experience. The Christian story is history. It is presented as a fact. And this is important for both proclaiming and receiving the gospel. It's important for proclaiming the gospel because you need to understand that what you are primarily offering people is not your personal testimony. Now, there, there's nothing wrong with sharing your personal experience and testimony. Our Christian experience is important. Peter says, give a reason for the hope that you have. This can be very helpful. It can demonstrate the power of the gospel. But evangelism is not sharing your testimony. Your personal testimony and subjective experience is not the ground of the gospel. That is not what you are asking people to believe. I'm not asking any of you, but believe my experience. I'm asking you to believe historical facts. You are called to consider the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus, who talked to Jesus, who listened to Jesus, who wept in sorrow when they beheld Jesus upon the cross, and then with joy as they beheld the empty tomb. So do not go out and simply ask people, believe my experience, to believe your testimony. Ask them to believe God's 
testimony and the testimony of the apostles that has been preserved in the Bible. This is also important for receiving the gospel. If you are considering the truth of the gospel, you are not to base your acceptance on whether or not you like Christians. You're not, you are instead to consider whether or not Christianity is true. None of you need to like me. You don't have to think I'm a, I'm a great guy. The truth of Christianity does not rest on Christians. It rests on Christ. Did Jesus really teach and preach and perform miracles? Did Jesus really die on the cross? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Again, you are being asked to consider facts, not fables. You are considering history, not mere morality. This is what the apostles went out and offered to the world. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, Peter says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the apostle John concurs. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Now you might think, that's fine to say but how can I possibly believe such things? I wasn't there. Many of these events sound quite fanciful. Pastor, you're just asking me to have blind faith. No, I'm not. I'm asking you to have reasonable faith. Because the Christian story is not only historical, it is reasonable. Look at verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Christianity proclaims many miracles. But Christ's resurrection is the miracle of miracles. It is the miracle that Paul says the entire Christian faith depends upon. He tells the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul says if the resurrection is not a historical fact, then my entire life is worthless. It says, what I've given my life to in preaching, pointless. Paul even goes on to say, if this isn't true, you should pity Christians more than anybody else. They have the saddest life that is built on a lie. And yet Paul doesn't seem at 
all concerned that his life is in vain and that his ministry is in vain. Why? Because God gave him proof. See, God knew this all depended on certainty that Jesus was raised from the dead, which is why God did not just send an angel to tell the disciples, Jesus is raised from the dead. The only evidence he offered was not limited to the empty tomb. As if they just had to go see an empty tomb and believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. What's the only way that you would believe that someone you saw die was alive again? The only way you would believe that is if you yourself saw that person alive. And so Jesus presented himself to his disciples. God could have immediately moved from the resurrection to the ascension without telling anybody. But he didn't. Jesus remained on earth for another 40 days after he was raised. He appeared multiple times to hundreds of people. Because this would be hard to believe. See, Jesus would understand that some of his disciples might see Jesus, share a meal with Jesus, go to sleep, wake up the next day and think, wait, did I really see Jesus? I I saw him die. And so Jesus came back day two and day three and day four through day 40. 40 days he appeared to them again and again. Luke says Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs. And that word means that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner. Means Jesus did not leave even the shadow of a doubt. He did not appear to one person one time. The Bible records multiple appearances, and yet Luke suggests here there were even more appearances than were written down. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he ate with them, he let them touch him, he walked with them, he spoke to them. When one of the the original 12, Thomas, wasn't there for one of those first appearances, Jesus didn't just make Thomas take the word of the others. Jesus came again so that Thomas could see him. And he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. God knew we would be prone to disbelieve. So he gave convincing proofs. I know you haven't seen Jesus, but most of history is stuff you never saw. And yet you believe it. You believe the stories of Caesar Augustus and many, many other people that are written about in the same day as Jesus. And you don't question whether they were real or not. Because there were multiple reliable witnesses. The same is true for Christianity. 
This isn't like Mormonism, where you just have to trust that John Smith found and read what nobody else saw, or Muhammad, who just happened to be alone in the cave when Gabriel the angel came and talked to him. This isn't the testimony of one man without any further evidence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul's saying, you go ask them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. When the 11 apostles had to replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus, as we'll read about later in Acts 1, Peter says that the new apostle who's going to go out with us, he has to be someone who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So when you think of who were the apostles, the, the, the first answer is not, well, the apostles were just preachers and teachers. No, the apostles first and foremost thought of themselves as we are people who saw Jesus alive after we saw Jesus dead. So you ever asked yourself, why did these apostles suffer so much for this faith? If it was just a, a moral code, if it was just a, a nice psychology, if it was just kind of an entertaining myth, why did they suffer? You, you read some of Paul's accounts of what he suffered to tell this story. And you, you'd ask yourself, Paul, why would you go through all of that? Why did all of these apostles, except the apostle John, actually die because of what they preached? It is because, as Paul says, they knew whom they had believed. Paul met Jesus. You could not have convinced Paul that Jesus was a lie any more than you could have convinced Paul as the sun was shining down on him. That sun's not real, Paul. He said, what do you mean it's not real? I can see it. I can see everything by it. I can feel the heat on my face. It's how confident he was that he had met the risen Lord Jesus. And when you know Jesus... That changes everything because Jesus is everything and the story is all about him. It is personal. Now by personal, I don't mean here something that you have to personally embrace by faith, although that is true. Christianity is personal in that sense. You must receive this by faith for yourself. But it's also personal in the sense that it is about a person. 
Christianity is not first a teaching. It is first a person. Yes, this person, Jesus, did certain works and he taught, but these works and these teachings only matter because of who he is. For he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is God the Son, the eternal Word of life. He is the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world. That is why all of his works and words matter. That is why the apostles suffered and died proclaiming him. This is why Luke is concerned with what Jesus began to do and teach, and why Jesus' suffering, resurrection, and ascension are crucial. It is because Christianity is Christ. It is about his person and all he did and taught. But here's what I want you to see. If Luke and Acts are one story, and the second book is just continuing the first, then what is the important implication when Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach up until he was taken away. You might think, no, Luke, in the first book, you wrote, all that Jesus did and talks. He, he's gone now. But in Luke's mind, this second book is clearly about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Acts is the story of Christ continued. It is not in Luke's mind, as you probably see at the little title in your Bible, it is not in Luke's mind the Acts of the Apostles. That's not how he views this book. He views this book as the continued Acts of Jesus. When you read Acts, you have not stopped reading about what Jesus did and taught and now learn about what some other people did and taught. You are learning about what Jesus continued to do and teach now through his apostles as they preached by the word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ continued, the acts of the risen and exalted Jesus. So yes, in one sense, Jesus' earthly ministry ended with his ascension, but that was not the end of his ministry on earth. Jesus is still teaching and working in the world. He has a heavenly ministry, but that is not exclusively worked out in heaven. Jesus is not on earth, but he is still ministering on earth through his spirit and his word. Now, as we'll see in Acts, this kingdom ministry was first continued by the apostles. Jesus worked by his spirit through the preaching of his apostles. But even though that foundational phase of kingdom ministry is over, it's complete, his kingdom ministry continues today through the church. And so Christ is still working through his people by the power of that same Holy Spirit 
and through that same word. So Christ's ascension was not his last act, nor was it the final chapter of the gospel. Jesus is still acting. He is still ministering. He is still saving. He is still kingdom building. And this is really good news for you and for me. Why? Let me close with two comforts from knowing that kingdom ministry in Acts and today is Christ's ministry. It is Christ acting in the world. And the first comfort from knowing this is it tells you that Christ's work in the world will not fail. Listen to two promises that Jesus gave his disciples. The first he gave soon before he ascended to heaven and sent them out to be his witnesses. He said in Matthew 28, which most of you are probably very familiar with, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So note the reason that Jesus sends his apostles into the world. He doesn't say, listen, I did my part. Now it's up to you. Good luck. He says, guys, I'm the king. I now rule everything. Heaven, earth, I have the authority. So I want you to now go out into the world that I rule with my authority and make disciples, and I'm going to be with you. You see, Jesus does not think his part of the story has ended, and now it's just up to these apostles. The one who has all authority has promised to be with you always as you proclaim him. I find that very comforting every time I step into this pulpit. And next, listen to what Jesus tells Peter and the disciples when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, which I take to be the foundation of the apostles' confession of Christ, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He does not say, the gates of hell will not prevail as you build my church. He says, I'm going to build it, and that's why the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For Jesus is the stronger man who bound the devil. Jesus is the one building his kingdom. The power of Satan cannot withstand the power of Christ. Believe me, it could withstand our power. It could withstand our preaching. It could withstand our acts of service. It can't withstand Christ's acts. And this is why the church has unassailable hope as she worships Christ and proclaims the kingdom of Christ. 
No matter the church's sins and failures, no matter the inadequacies and flaws in our preaching, the church cannot fail because the kingdom is not the church building it. It is Christ building the church. Do you see the comfort that that provides you? Christ is using you. He's using you to proclaim his kingdom. But you're not the builder, and the structure does not depend on you. You're not the one holding it upright. You see, the church will not fall because Christ will not fail. And this is what gave the apostles great boldness. This is what sustained them through great persecution. And it can do the same for you and for me. So rejoice in and preach Christ with boldness and assurance for Christian ministry is Christ working through Christians. It's not our ministry. It's his. But Christ is not only working through Christians. Praise be to God. He is working in Christians. And this is the second and final comfort. When you recognize that it is Christ's work, you will understand that Christ's work in you will not fail. The kingdom is spreading through the world as it spreads to human hearts. So Christ's work in the world includes his work in his people. He's not just working through you. He is working in in you, and he will not stop working in you until that good work is complete. So Christian, you will not finally fall because he will not fail. Again, listen to Paul. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ began it. Christ completes it. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And Paul said, as we heard in that, well, Paul didn't say this, but as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the good news of the book of Acts is that Jesus is alive and well. And he is still acting in the world, and he is still acting in you. He lived, 
He died. He rose again on the third day. He appeared to hundreds of his disciples with convincing proofs over multiple times for 40 days. He ascended to heaven and he did take his seat on his heavenly throne. But this was not the end. He's still building his kingdom in the world by his spirit and by his word through his people. His kingdom, therefore, cannot finally fail, and his people cannot finally fall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every day when we wake up, we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And we can know that that grace will never be in vain. It will not be in vain as Christ works in us, and it will not be in vain as Christ works through us. So I pray that this reminder would give us patience and hope as we continue to live each day seeking to be faithful. May it give us patience and, and hope when we are not as far along as we would like to be. And I pray that it would also give us patience and hope as we seek to be faithful with what you have called us to do. As we go out and we do our jobs every day, as we seek to work hard in obedience to the Lord and along the way as we seek to tell others about Jesus Christ. May we have great hope that that word will never be in vain. Yes, there are many who will reject it, but there will be some who receive it. So help us to keep believing, keep trusting, and keep proclaiming Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.